We are taking a, a break from Zechariah to uh, focus on uh, the nature of, of what's taking place tonight with the ordination of, of an elder and, and two deacons. And we're going to consider that from uh, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 13. Uh, I'm sorry, verse, beginning in verse 3 through 13. Paul writes, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Widen your hearts also. We consider tonight uh, ministry with a wide open heart. It's commonplace to need to show some a form of identification in, in certain um, workplaces, a badge that shows you belong. You're allowed to go down that certain hallway or a passcode that you can use to get into certain software. Uh, the more sensitive the work, the higher the security. And, of course, you know, we think of facial recognition or, or retinal scans from movies that probably isn't that far off from uh, reality. But what about God's workplace? The church. Uh, what if, if you work here? What if, if you are a servant of God, as, as Paul puts it in verse 4, referring to himself and other ministers of the new covenant? They are servants of God. Can we think of any work that's more sensitive than the work of ministry? Uh, the work of soul care. It, it, since that is such a, a sensitive work, such an important work, what safeguards are put in place to ensure uh, that, that only approved workmen get in? Interestingly, we learn here one of the most difficult barriers to get through or to get over in order to serve the people of God is the people of God themselves. That's Paul's a trouble here. He's writing to the Corinthians and he's saying, I've been appointed by God to serve you and you're not receiving my ministry. You're not accepting me. This is a barrier for Paul and his, his fellow co-laborers there at Corinth, a congregation that is suspicious of his ministry, people that need to be convinced that 
that he's authentic. People that need to let the workers into the church to do their service. And Paul is so moved, friends. Uh, we know this throughout from reading all of his epistles. But he's, he's so moved by the gospel. What it really is. What it means. That man, sinful man, has been reconciled to a, to a holy God. That, that he does not want there to be any reason for people to reject his ministry because he rightly understands that if they reject his ministry, there is a very great risk that they will reject the message as well. And so what we see here as Paul tries to convince the Corinthians to accept his ministry, it's not that he's trying to puff himself up. He's not trying to say, how could you not listen or believe me? I mean, I'm all that. No, no, he's saying, I have the message that is all that. And I want you to hear it. I want you to receive it. I want you to believe it. Ministers, servants of God, God's ambassadors, can sully the message by their speech, by their conduct, and they can give the church a legitimate reason to reject their ministry or their message. And so Paul points to the fact that in fact there is no reason to reject him or his ministry. There's no reason to be suspicious of his ministry or that of other new covenant ministers. And he gives three reasons as to why. And so for workers in the church of God, for servants of the church, servants of God, uh, we're not given badges or key cards, uh, but Paul does give us signs or evidences of an authentic workman, an authentic servant of God in these verses. And the first sign of an authentic servant, an authentic servant of God or a worker in the house of God, in the church of God, is a willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ. I'm trying to find my officer, Alex, because I want to be making a lot of eye contact with you guys. There, yes, there you are. Jake was the one hiding. I couldn't find. (laughs) This is the first proof of an authentic servant. Willingness to suffer for Christ. It's the first commendation Paul makes for himself and other ministers. So look there again with me in in verse uh, 4. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Let me start with this way, Paul says. Because of our endurance in Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. The 4th century church father, uh, John Chrysostom, uh, called this Paul's blizzard of affliction, or his blizzard of troubles. Uh, These nine tribulations that he outlines, that he experiences not just in life generally, but in ministry specifically. And these nine uh, troubles actually can be categorized in three uh, subgroups. The first are quite generic, afflictions, hardships, and calamities. But then you note that the second group of three refers to trials that Paul would have experienced um, as a result of people rejecting his message. Violent reaction to his ministry. And so we read of beatings imprisonments, and riots, things that you find in the book of Acts that indeed have taken place in Paul's life. And then there's the final three that describe the emotional torment 
that accompanies ministry. Exhaustive labor and yet sleepless nights and loss of appetite. Every pastor, elder, or deacon worth their salt who've been serving for any length of time uh, understand and recognize that uh, the concerns of the soul and the well-being of, of the flock to which they've been entrusted can make them almost sick to their stomach uh, with, with anxiety, with worry, with concern. Um, sacrifice, therefore, is at the heart of gospel ministry. Why is sacrifice at the heart of gospel ministry? It's quite simple, because sacrifice is at the heart of the gospel. Uh, God's sacrifice for us of his beloved son, the cross, and so we see that sacrifice is, is this first sign of a willingness or a, of an authentic servant, the willingness to, to sacrifice, to suffer for, for Christ, whether it's in evangelizing unbelievers or providing pastoral care or serving in mercy ministry or catechizing the youth, praying for the sick and the faint-hearted, the service of God when it is true to Christ is rarely easy and is frequently painful. Look at what Paul writes in chapter 4. Just flip the page back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, this ministry. It's a fragile thing so that people can see. What does he say? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then what does he say? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And listen to this, verse 12, So death is at work in us, but life in you. What's he saying there? What is Paul saying there? It's quite a profound and sobering statement for those who think uh, of uh, setting themselves to the task of, of ministry. Paul is saying that, that the life which the church in Corinth enjoys, uh, specifically, ultimately, of course, they're being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, but any sense in which they have spiritual enjoyment, spiritual blessing, any sense in which they... They, they recognize that they are alive in Christ to any sense in which we could say that the church enjoys life. It has been at the expense of the death of Paul, the sacrificial work of Paul, dying to self. And so, brothers, tonight, understand quite soberly that when the servants of God die to themselves... The church of God is brought to life. When the servants of God die to themselves, it always is for the sake of the church, for the betterment of the church. Death is at work in us, Paul says, but life in you. Of course, this suffering is a picture of Christian ministry ordained or not. These hardships are part and parcel of what it means to be a servant of God, and we are all called to be servants of God. And yet today, we have three men who have raised their hands and they've said, sign me up for this. 
Well, we're all called to ministry in some way or another. Uh, this, this cross must be borne by all who follow Christ. He suffered intense tribulations, and, and servants are not greater than their masters. And yet, even so, friends, even so, isn't there something admirable of those saints who with sterling determination, with, with eyes wide open, with a, a clear understanding of what, it, what it's going to take and, and what it means, still step forward into the fray. Uh, John Chrysostom called this the blizzard of Paul's affliction, his trouble. Uh, but we could equally call it a furnace. I mean, trials are like a furnace. And the heat of persecution does an interesting thing when it comes to Christian ministry. It really it does one of two things. On the one hand, uh, the, the heat, uh, the fires of trial will, will wilt the imposter, the one who is inauthentic. When the going gets tough, those who are not really all in for Jesus will get going as well. But for the authentic servant of God, the fire refines him. It brings him closer to Christ. It conforms him more to the image of Christ. It doesn't melt him. It actually strengthens him. And so a first sign of authentic service in the church of God is a willingness to step into that fire. A willingness to suffer. A second sign of authenticity is a piety that reflects Christ. So first, a willingness to suffer for Christ. Secondly, a piety that reflects Christ. Verse 6, Paul says, we commend ourselves also by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God. Piety. What do you think of when you hear that word piety? I think a lot of people think that it's kind of a quaint idea that belongs to a bygone puritanical age. Well, that's, that's cute, this idea of holy living. Uh, much more attractive today is this idea of, of kind of um, what we might call uh, uh, vulnerability. People would call it authenticity, of course. Uh, the idea that you should actually revel in your weakness and, um, and in your sins, but then never seek to mortify them. It's a way of flaunting Christian liberty, of preaching a message that God accepts us just as we are, warts and all. And praise God, he does, but he does not leave us there. He sanctifies us. He changes us. So this is not authentic authentic Christianity, this idea of, of living an impious life. Not according to Paul, authentic Christianity is seen in those individuals who with, who with much effort... Much endurance, cultivate lives by the power of God that are marked by purity, that are marked by knowledge, that are marked by a reliance on the Holy Spirit, that are marked by uh, uh, truthful speech. You can trust these people that, that are marked by genuine love. Is that the, is that the language that we uh, read there? In verse... The end of verse 6, genuine love. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It's, um, it, it, it's actually uh, something that would mean anti-hypocritical. And in the Greek word, somebody who was a hypocrite was an actor, somebody on the stage. 
And essentially what Paul's saying here is a real servant of God is a bad actor. They can't fake it. What you see is what you get. They're the real thing. Genuine love. And so, having someone who can't fake it, somebody who can't pretend, somebody who who just effuses uh, 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 this sense that, that... that they are at peace with God and they want others to be at peace with God and they desire to commune with Him in prayer and they want to to show others this, this relationship that they have through deeds of love and mercy. And somebody that you know that, that they're, not, they're not putting on a show, that's a great thing, that's a wonderful thing in Christian ministry. The inability to be a good actor. Why is the life of piety so critical for the servants of God? A number of things could be said here. Why piety matters. Brothers, why does piety matter in your life? Uh, we rejoice that, that the church clearly has recognized you do exemplify a pious life. But why, why must this continue as you take on the call of elder or deacon? Well, in the immediate context of Corinthians here, we see that Paul is asserting that it has everything to do with, the, uh, with protecting the message of God. We all know people have been turned off to Christianity wholesale because, uh, because of a hypocrite, because of a, a, a moral failing of a minister, let's say. And yet, Paul writes, we put no obstacles in people's Way Verse 3, we're not going to give you any reason to reject the message when you look at us. We endure trials and we live holy lives. Believe the message because the messages or the messengers and the ministers are trustworthy and they are truthful. Uh, Beyond that, a call to radical holiness is paramount to the servants in the church because as Richard Baxter once noted... The tempter will make his first and his sharpest attack upon you. You who stand up and say, I'll lead God's people. Baxter says, if you will be the leaders against him, he will spare you no further than God's restraint upon him. He beareth you the greatest malice who are engaged to do him the greatest mischief. And yet another reason why... Why piety is so important is because of the fruitfulness of our ministry depends upon it. David uh, Dixon in his book, The Work of the Elder, says, The usefulness of an elder will depend in the long run more, more on his character than on his gifts and knowledge. I remember being told in a seminary um, that uh, for preachers, for pastors... What's really going to matter to your congregation isn't what you get up and say every week because they will forget that pretty much the moment you've said it. But what they will remember years after you've left is if you love them. And, of course, that's hard to hear for somebody who spends most hours of his week working on writing sermons and being careful about the words that he chooses. But yet I, I, I recognize that's so important to remember And McShane is the one who said, what my congregation needs of me more than anything else is my personal holiness. 
Our ministry, the fruitfulness of our ministry depends on how we live. What will people remember about your service as an elder or as deacons? Will it be that you lived a holy life and that you loved them? How can we inspire others to purity if we ourselves are not pure? How can we expect others to grow in knowledge if we ourselves are not immersed in the word of God? The fruitfulness of our ministry depends upon our piety. We must rely on the power of God. That was something that Paul says there, verse 7, by truthful speech and the power of God. They, They commit themselves to the power of God. We must rely on the power of God and not the power of self if we want to see the power of God at work in others. It's the same Holy Spirit that bears fruit in our lives that will bear fruit in the lives of others through our labors. In his first lecture to students, this is what Spurgeon wrote. He says, we must cultivate the highest degree of godliness because our work imperatively requires it. The labor of the Christian ministry is well performed in exact proportion to the vigor of the renewed nature. Our work, listen to this, brothers, our work is only well done when it is well with ourselves, as is the workman, such will the work be. To face the enemies of truth, to defend the bulwarks of the faith, to rule well in the house of God, to comfort those who mourn, to edify the saints, to guide the perplexed, to bear with the wayward, to win and nurse souls. All these and a thousand other works besides are not for those of a feeble mind or those who are ready to quit, but are reserved for those of great heart whom the Lord has made strong for himself. Seek then strength from the strong one, wisdom from the wise one. In fact, seek all from the God who is all. Well, there's a final commendation of authentic, true service of the church, a willingness to suffer for Christ, a piety that reflects Christ, and then finally, an unwavering heart and hope that is set upon Christ. Uh, Paul says that true ministers... Do not care what anybody thinks except Christ. That's what matters to them, is what Christ says about them. His is the only evaluation that matters. And so their values are, are established, uh, the, the perspectives that they own. It doesn't come from, from this world. They aren't working off the metrics that are common to the society in which they live. Uh, when it comes to things like success or worth or value. Rather, to them, everything goes back to this simple point. What does Jesus say about this? What does Jesus think of me? What does Jesus expect from me? Look at verse 8 and following. We see here how how they really only care about what Christ thinks, about about what their life means in light of eternity. Verse 8 and following. We're treated as impostors, but we are true. As unknown, yet well known. As dying, behold, we live. As punished, and yet not killed. As Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, and as having nothing yet possessing everything. And why is that perspective so essential for ministry? And I think the answer has to be is that it keeps discouragement at bay. Because, uh, brothers, the world isn't going to cheer you on tonight. Or at any point as you seek to serve Christ, to serve his people. The world isn't going to give you a medal for living a holy life and and serving in the church. 
And so if we live for the world's commendation, the world's acknowledgement, the world's accolades, if that's where our heart is, our hands will droop and our knees will drop at the work that is before us. But if heaven is our goal, if our hope is Christ and what he promises us, then, well, the world can say anything they want about us. And we go on, sorrowing yet rejoicing, having nothing yet having everything. Do you want to know how to spot a real servant of God? They will be somebody who, from the world's perspective, according to the world's standards, has very little and perhaps even has nothing. And yet this individual will still have a smile on their face because they know they have Jesus. And if they have Jesus, they have everything. And isn't that what we want from leaders in the church? People to remind us that's what we need. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Paul says that's an authentic sign of a true servant. Somebody who doesn't care what the world thinks. But they're thinking of another world entirely. That's one of the most essential tasks of Christian ministry is to get other people that perspective too. And so a servant in the church is not fulfilling his role unless he is pointing others to the hope that lies beyond the boundaries of this world. So we've seen three components of an authentic minister, an authentic servant in the church, an authentic leader in the church, one who displays a willingness to suffer, uh, one who has a piety that reflects Jesus, one who has a hope that is set on heaven We have three of those men being ordained officially to service in the church today. And so I I, I kind of turn now uh, the the focus from those brothers to the congregation and say, uh, so what's your responsibility? How are you to respond? What's the appropriate response of the church? And the answer could be put in a single word. Love. Love. You are, dear flock, to love these brothers. Look at what Paul says in verse 10 through verse 13. He says that his heart has been opened wide to the Corinthians. His service is not just a sign of his faithfulness to God. His service is a sign of his love for the Corinthians. His heart has been widened, enlarged to receive the Corinthians, warts and all. This is a tough congregation if you know your Bibles. Pastors, elders, deacons, we must all have hearts that are wide open to receive the people of God, no matter what kind of baggage they might bring, no matter the struggles they have, no matter the quirks of their personality. This is what Paul did in Corinth. And then the question is, what does he ask for in return? What does he say the church must do? He says, I want you to do the same thing. I've laid my heart out on the line for you. I've I've opened my heart to embrace you in all of these ways. Now would you open your heart wide to me as well. Verse 13, in return, I speak as to children. It's almost as though he says, I'm not asking much at all. Widen your hearts also. He wants them to widen their hearts to accept him and his fellow ministers with their warts and all. 
Don't accept us because we're perfect. Accept us because we seek to serve you. And the power of the Spirit and obedience to the command of Christ as best as we can. We know we fail. We know we're weak. And yet our hearts have been opened to you. And so could you do this one thing? Could you open your hearts to us? Could you do that tonight? Community? Presbyterian? Could you open your hearts to Brian and Bryce and Jake? What do we learn, though, in that instruction? I think we're learning that naturally the heart is a fairly small organ without the capacity, actually, uh, to love or care for anybody outside of self. There isn't room for others unless we take seriously the command to widen our hearts, to enlarge our affections. Uh, Salvation is the event where God took our tiny, cold hearts and he melted them so that we would receive Jesus Christ. Uh, Salvation doesn't stop there. It continues on in sanctification where that heart that's been melted and, and has been warmed to receive Christ continues to grow and to receive those whom Christ has saved as well. So, dear church, today you are called to widen your hearts to receive those men who have... Step forward to, to service in the church. How could, you do to, do, uh, how could you do this? Well, there are a myriad of ways. We don't have time to get in, into all of them. Praying is the most essential. It's hard to have your heart closed to somebody that you're praying for regularly. At our monthly prayer meeting, we have uh, a dear member of our congregation who almost every time without fail will mention in terms of a prayer or praise the elders and the deacons of this church. And that is a, a sign that this person's heart has been opened wide to receive the officers of this church, even with all their flaws and failures. We widen our hearts when we actually receive the ministry of the servants of the church, when we don't scoff at them, when they try to serve us, when we don't cross our arms and shut our ears when they're speaking, when we don't dismiss them out of hand, when we can actually receive their their loving rebuke and not say, okay, that's it, I'm out of here, and leave the church when they try to correct us. We widen our hearts for the officers of the church when we seek in some way even to minister to them in return. Checking on them and their families, asking if there are ways we can help them out, thinking of tangible ways to encourage them in their labors, thank you cards, texts, and so forth. They go a long way. A ministry is often a thankless job, but when you think about it, it should never be so in the church when it's done in the context of Christians who are called to give thanks in all circumstances. So give thanks for these brothers tonight. Give thanks for uh, David and Derek and Seth. Give thanks for Bob and Tom and Perry. And not just tonight, but as their ministries continue. But especially tonight, as we think of these three brothers, they are displaying to you, dear church, hearts that are wide open. How else might you heed the call of the apostle to widen your hearts also? The strength The unity, the health, and indeed even the happiness of the church depends upon this. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are so grateful for the events of, of this night. We are excited for them, but we recognize 
This is a weighty thing that is about to take place. It is a weighty thing for these men to be uh, taking these vows and to be ordained to sacred office. And we must, as a congregation, take it seriously as well to receive their ministry in love, to widen our hearts uh, to receive them. Uh, Would we be able to reflect this ideal church that that Paul is imploring the Corinthians to to establish, a heart where, where... uh, ministers and, and, and members alike have hearts that are open wide to one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.